Well, okay, by popular demand. No more calls, no more complaining uh, that we don't spend enough time with Bill Anderson from Rutland, who I call uh, that old country lawyer. I just know Bill because in my time in rural water, I, I was sued nine times as manager. Nine times. Of course, you're going to be because you're crossing land, building systems, and people are mad because you made them pay their bill and those type of things. There was only one lawsuit that I ever lost, and that was to Bill Anderson, which I've never really forgiven you for, even though we were in the wrong, Bill. (laughs) We were. (laughs) So, you know, getting a chance to visit with uh, Bill about just his story, uh, history, and and what it all means. Um, Bill served in Vietnam. He did. He served this country in Vietnam, and it's the 50th anniversary of the U.S. getting out of Vietnam. What does that mean to you, Bill? Well, uh, that means that uh, we ended a uh, costly episode in our history that we got into with the best of intentions, probably didn't pursue with the best of uh, strategy or tactics. And uh, in the end, uh, it became pretty clear that it was... uh, just going to be a never-ending uh, drain of lives and treasure and uh, and morale, not just for the U.S. military, but for our whole country. So uh, uh, I thought uh, the end of the war in Vietnam, uh, and I know it was called... Uh, Uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon called it peace with honor, even though there was no peace and there was no honor in it, but it got us out of it. The war went on between North and South Vietnam and uh, with the Viet Cong on the side of North Vietnam. And two years later, it, uh, it ended, uh, at least what the Vietnamese call the American War, ended with the uh, North Vietnamese conquering the South, and, and that, was, uh, that was the final end of it. But that's, as we've, or as I found out later on through reading and listening and whatever, that uh, it was really a... a a 2,000-year struggle. Uh, the uh, Vietnamese have for 2,000 years uh, been trying to unify their country. A, a few times they've succeeded. A few times it uh, hasn't worked out. Uh, they've uh, uh, liberated themselves from their Cambodian neighbors to the, uh, to the west. They've uh, liberated themselves from the Chinese several times and uh, uh, and even since uh, the American involvement in Vietnam, I found out when I was back there in 2018 that uh, that uh, they don't really even have much of a memory of us being there. Uh, since we were there, they had a war with the uh, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, 
in which they rid Southeast Asia of that uh, uh, barbarous uh, scourge. And then they had a border war with China. And uh, both of those are fresher in their memory than our involvement, although they do... uh, they do seem to remember the, both the French and the Japanese with a, uh, with a lot of uh, revulsion. Yeah, I remember talking to my dad, and I think this was kind of a phrase that I don't think Ray Heitkamp came up with, but I, I think as a World War II vet, um, you know, that, that it affected his life, and it certainly affected mine in the sense that I had an army recruiter at my house and I had a couple buddies that joined the, the North Dakota national guard. And I was going to do that. Um, my, the set, the last semester of my senior year, uh, you know, college paid for, uh, there was a lot of good things. My dad found out he was working on the road for Northern improvement up in, uh, uh, Crosby area, and he drove home through the middle of the night to to look at me and say, "No, uh, you're not going to go in." And part of that was because of the Vietnam War. He was mad, uh, and he thinks that, or he thought, you know, Dad's gone to us now, but he thought that you and the others that served in that war uh, fought with one hand tied behind your back, and that was his phrase that that uh, the the men and the women that that fought in in the Vietnam War that served this country. We're never given a chance to win the way that, that he was in World War II. Well, we certainly, uh, you know, we certainly didn't have all-out uh, total war like there was in uh, World War II. I think Lyndon Johnson was, uh, uh, he, was uh, he, he operated out of fear. He... he he didn't dare get out of Vietnam for fear of what would happen to him politically back home, and he didn't dare pursue the war uh, uh, with a victory in mind uh, because he was afraid of what both the, either the Chinese or the Russians or both of them might do uh, in, uh, in the way of starting a... Uh, a wider war, and uh, uh, I think uh, uh, what he showed us was that operating out of fear, whether it's fear of your uh, of uh, political consequences or fear of what uh, your uh, potential enemies might do, and you don't have a lot of control over either one of those. But uh, when you operate out of fear, you uh, uh, you probably don't make the best. Uh, the best decisions. So, I mean, country. you're a Marine in World War II. And, and I know because, you know, when you come on the radio show, you talk a lot about the the men that you met, the friends that you met, just in this area yet, the ones you keep in touch with, and, of course, ones out of the area, lifetime friends. But when you think about your service as a Marine in World War II, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? In World War Two? Er, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you think when you think about you know your service in the Vietnam War, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is pride. I was very proud of the uh, of the young Marines that I served with, and how disciplined and diligent they were in. 
in uh, doing their duty. I mean, not that they uh, uh, wouldn't uh, 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 try to get away with a few things once in a while, but uh, they, uh, uh, they serve their country in a way that their country can be very proud of, I thought. And, uh, and I think that's the, that's the first thing that I think of, uh, you know, the second thing I think of is, uh, uh, always being short, you know, short of people, short of helicopters, short of something, you know, all, all the time, you, no matter, no matter what happened, whatever it was you needed the most, that's what you uh, were short of. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, I think, and, I, and I think that was dad's point. I, I think that that really you being short in, in terms of the equipment, the gear, the people, all of that, you know, and then his other point that, that he made when we'd have a conversation, you got to remember the year that I was talking about doing what I was doing was 1979. Uh, that's That's not that long after. Um, you know, the Vietnam War, when, when this anniversary, uh, January 27th, uh, happened. And so, you know, I, I guess he felt that the people that went to war were always into the privileged didn't have to go to war there. I just said it, Bill. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do you believe that? Yes. Yeah. I, I believe it. I mean, <clears throat> I didn't, I've never considered myself to be privileged. My family was strictly uh, uh, middle-class country folks from small-town North Dakota, but yet uh, I don't think I would have ever had to go had I not decided to, uh, uh, to sign up for Marine Corps OCS and go in. But I... Uh, I had a talk with my dad in 1968 and uh, I, uh, I, I talked over some options because at that time I could have just driven north to Winnipeg and, uh, and I would have been, uh, you know, no, no problems up there. Uh, uh, the draft board couldn't reach you and uh, uh, the Canadian said, yeah, come on up and stay as long as you want. It, so, it wasn't that the case in World War One. what you just described? didn't? I, I realize it changed, but didn't a lot of Americans go to Canada in World War One to get into that fight? Well, they went up there to get into the fight, yeah. yeah. But in Vietnam, you could go up there to get out of the fight. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah you, I know someone yeah. that, that did that, yeah. that didn't believe we... We should have been in, in Vietnam. I see what you're getting right, at. Right, right. But, but anyway, so, I mean, I had, a, I had options, you know. And, uh, and my dad uh, just said, well, you know, if you're going to accept the benefits of living in a country, and we have plenty of benefits uh, living in the United States of America, if you're going to accept the benefits, sometimes you have to pay the price. And sometimes that price might, uh, uh, you know, sometimes the price is just uh, taking the time and the trouble to go to the polls to vote. But sometimes the price is uh, serving 
your country in a different way. Sometimes it might be serving in the military, and maybe you just stay in the U.S. when you're in the military. Maybe you, maybe you don't. Maybe you go overseas. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, you end up in combat. Other guys don't, and uh, uh, and some guys get hurt, and some guys die. And, so uh, when those, those might that one of those might be the price that you have to pay uh-huh. for being an American. And I thought about that for a long time, and I obviously I didn't go to Canada, and uh, obviously I I did go to the Marine Corps. So 18 years doing radio and and going around helping with fundraisers and other things. There's a lot of lot of men that the Vietnam War, you know, it affected them. Uh, whether it was alcohol, whether it was uh, depression that came with it, whether it was um, the, the inability to be successful. Obviously, you're a very successful uh, attorney out of Rutland, and back to I'm going back to the fact you sued me in one. Uh, you know, <laughs> but, but folks, just so you know, he sued me for fifty thousand dollars, and he was willing to settle for five hundred. So that was he got my attention, and and then we got it settled. But. Uh, you know, Bill, there's a lot of people got messed up in that war. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I always tell people when I got, uh, when I got out of the service, uh, I went up to Grand Forks one time and there, that was before, uh, interstate 29 was completed between Fargo and Grand Forks. So we still drove on old highway 81 north of Thompson. There was this big billboard advertising a uh, popular soft drink drink mix of the day it said drink canada dry <laughs> and uh, you know for about uh, 10 years after i got home i tried that but the canadians you know obviously could make it faster than i could drink it and uh, <laughs> and so i i could soft drink you it. said right yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway, I I did try to drink Canada Dry it just about everything. I didn't didn't make it, but uh, but anyway, and somehow or other, I mean, I still managed to uh, to be uh, relatively successful in business and uh, and uh, do a few other things. And then uh, one day, I just said, uh, "Hey, enough of that." The 50th anniversary of the end of Vietnam, the war uh, for us here in the United States. Bill, I promised you'd talk a little bit about characters, uh, the the men that you met and the men that you remember. Oh, gosh. You know, <clears throat> there's quite a few. I got to tell you, though, about uh, Sergeant uh, Ed Gamwell. Uh, Sergeant Gamwell, actually, I, I didn't serve with, with, uh, Sergeant Gamwell in Vietnam, but we had both been in Vietnam at the same time. And we had both been transferred to the third Marine division when the third Marine division left Vietnam. And we went to Okinawa to, uh, build up the third division again and get it combat ready. So I was serving as company commander of Company M, 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines, and and Ed Gamwell was a cargo loading specialist uh, who uh, was the guy who figured out how you packed everything. Uh, you had these big wooden 
packing boxes of different shapes and sizes and how you packed everything in those boxes and then loaded those boxes into an LST so that when you got to where you were going, when you unloaded, the, the stuff you needed first was the first stuff that came off. And the stuff you needed least was the last stuff that came off. And uh, it, it was like putting together a Rubik's Cube, you know, <laughs> getting all these boxes packed in there just right so that they all fit and, uh, and, uh, and didn't get the ship off balance or anything like that. So, but anyway, Ed Gamwell was telling me how uh, he had been married. And he said, he told his wife, he said, a spouse of a Marine Corps NCO should be continually striving to improve herself. <laughs> and Thus and, had been married. <laughs> and he said, he said, the next thing I knew, she divorced me and married a captain. So, <laughs> but, but uh he uh he did not lose hope and the last time i i talked with uh sergeant gamwell he was uh, uh doing very well had a lovely wife and family and uh, uh was a great guy he had a uh he had a voice that sounded like uh, the conveyor on a on a gravel crusher. <laughs> it was uh, one that definitely uh, you would never forget. You know, uh, a couple other guys that uh, that I think of are uh, uh, Gunnery Sergeant uh, Jose Tejas. Uh, uh, he was uh, he was the wise old man of Company D. Uh, first battalion fifth marines when we were when we were in the field and uh, uh, one time we got uh, we were set up we were set up in a position and our company commander barney lenahan thought we should move over to this other spot it's a better spot so we pick up in the middle of the night darker than the inside of a cat and we move about a mile over set up again and we hadn't been sitting there for more than probably 45 minutes to an hour and this whole unit of north vietnamese army soldiers walked right into us they they thought they knew where we were which was over the other way a mile <laughs> and uh, they were going to walk around us well instead they walked right into us and uh, and we had a uh, we had a terrific uh, firefight. There were uh, bullets flying all over the place. Uh, uh, machine gun tracers. Ours were red. Theirs were green. And uh, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Tejas, uh had a uh, uh, was with the mortar section, and a couple of guys got hit. So he was trying to do this all by himself and he was <laughs> he was he was handling a the 60 millimeter mortar without the bipod that you use for aiming it and he was just shooting 60 millimeter mortar rounds up in the air and hoping they came down in the right place which <laughs> luckily they did and uh, 
And every now and then he'd put an illumination round in there so we could see who we were shooting at. And, of course, they could see who was shooting at them, too. And anyway, uh, uh, it was a tremendous fight. But, but we, we didn't take any casualties, and, uh, and the NVA unit that walked into us took a, a huge number of casualties that they left on the battlefield. In, in some ways, they were like Marines in that they did not leave their dead or wounded behind. But in that case, they just, they just didn't have the manpower or the firepower to get them out of there. So, uh, so, this, so you know, I've known you them. for a long time, Bill, and this is going to be the most foolish question I ever asked you. Uh, but I think people are going to want me to ask you this, which is, were you ever afraid and and if so, <laughs> how afraid even you as a Marine were? Well, I think, as I think back on it, you know, I mean, uh, uh, anybody who says they were never afraid would lie to you about other things too. But <laughs> but generally, when the stuff was hitting the fan, uh, I was too busy. I was, I was too busy to let, and I'm not going to say that I didn't have concern for my physical safety, but I was too busy to let fear control what I was doing. I mean, I had things that I had to do. And if I didn't do them, I would be letting my, I'd be letting my Marines down. I'd be letting my, uh, CO down, I'd be letting my fellow platoon commanders down. And I, and I had to do those things, so I did them. And uh, I think for most of us, the time <clears throat> for being afraid was after words. Maybe soon after, maybe, you know, after the shooting stopped, when everything got quiet again, uh, maybe it was a week later. Maybe it happened when, uh, three months later when you were on R and R, maybe it happened 10 years later or 20 years later in the dark of the night when you wake up and you're sweating. And, uh, uh but I, I, at the time, the actual time of, uh, uh, when we were in combat, I, you know, I, I guess I, I recall thinking that a guy could get killed out here, but, uh, but I, uh, I don't actually recall the feeling of, of fear, you know, where you're, where you're just, uh, paralyzed by it, you know, but, but I think for a lot of guys that happen later. Like I said, sometimes five minutes, sometimes maybe five years, sometimes maybe five decades. So you're you're a Marine. Uh, you're going over there, and you are going to get in the fight. And you know the the chance of being in that fight is just about a hundred percent. Being in the Marine Corps, um, yeah. and and then you go back. All these years later, you get on a plane and you fly back to Vietnam. I'm curious what your impression was of Vietnam 
when you were a young man versus when you went as, uh, let's call it middle-aged, uh, if, if that makes me more <laughs> endeared to you? Well, uh, you know, when, uh, the first thing I remember when I got off the plane in January 1970 was the smell. It was overpowering. It just about knocked you back on your heels. And uh, uh, and the, the sweltering humidity and uh, uh, you know I I dis- I guess I described it once as a, uh, a cross between a uh, a fish cleaning station that had uh, not been cleaned up and been sitting in the hot sun and an old outhouse that hadn't been scrubbed for a long time and they. Uh, uh, if you combine those two smells, uh, uh, that was uh, that was what I uh, one of the first things that I noticed when I got off the plane in 1970. When I got off the plane at uh, Da Nang in uh, in 2018, that smell was not there, and uh, uh, the uh, airport facility was. Uh, clean and modern and uh, and new i thought it looked uh, i thought the airport facility well actually we were in saigon too for but only to change planes but i thought the airports in saigon and da nang <laughs> looked a lot better than uh, jfk airport in new york looks. <laughs> and uh i don't uh, doubt that you know and i mean i hated to say that I hate to say that. I like to think that here in America we've got the best, but we don't always. And last one as we end this chapter, uh, Bill, and we're we're visiting with Bill Anderson, uh, country lawyer, uh, a guy that practiced law in the city of Rutland, uh, where it was home, uh, and it still is home today. The men, uh, you know, when when you think of the Vietnam War, and if you could say anything. To them, because some of them are listening right now, uh, the, the men that did what you did, what would you say to them? I would just say that uh, be proud of yourselves. Be proud of what you did and how you served your country. And uh, uh, don't be concerned about what somebody uh thinks whether they uh, whether they think you're a hero or whether they think you were a, a devil for serving over there uh, don't be concerned about that you know what you did and you you did your duty you served your country and you can be proud of that your children grandchildren your friends your neighbors can be proud of what you did, and they can be proud of you, and you should be proud of yourself. That's what I think. We're going to do more of these, uh, folks, and we're doing what you asked us to do. Bill, I want to thank you. Appreciate this. Yeah, thank you, Joel. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you, whether it's here in the station with the Abby at the controls or if it's uh, 
at the Lariat Bar with Shauna serving the beer. <laughs> and I got two free drink tickets out of this deal. So, folks, I'm winning. Uh, all right, we're going to do more of this, and we will uh, make sure that you can find all of it at kfgo.com.